You know what I hate? What do they call it? Is it uh, fo FOMO? Is that right? Fear missing out? Can I tell you the time I missed out the most of all time? All right, so I love baseball, you know? It's like all the other sports, but it's a thousand times better. Anyway, you know what a no-hitter is in baseball? You don't know. But uh, <laughs> a no-hitter is when the pitcher pitches the entire game and the other team doesn't get a single base hit. So there's been four or five of them in my lifetime that the Giants pitcher has thrown. They're pretty rare. And I, before these kids were cramping my style, I used to go to like 25 or 30 games a year, you know. Uh, now I only go to like 10. Um, but I've always wanted to see a no-hitter. What I used to do when I was at my old church, well, I guess I've done this here a couple of times, not as much as I used to, but uh, the Giants used to play uh, day games every Wednesday. I think that was like the regular schedule. And uh, so what I would do is I would go down to the game and buy a ticket wait till the second inning buy a ticket off one of the scalper guys for I'll, I'll give you five bucks for any ticket you have in the second inning he knows he's not going to sell it so he'll give it to me or there's an app called game time i love game time i'd buy a ticket for dirt cheap just the cheapest ticket to get in and then i would go all the way up into the far back of the stadium so i was in the shade there's only like a strip of shade in the whole stadium during the day and i would sit in there and i had my laptop and i would sit up there and i would they have wi-fi and i would just research and write for the sermons I would sit up there and just treat the game like it was my office. I'd bring a sandwich. It was great. I used to do this all the time. I had my motorcycle. Well, one day when I was a pastor at my old church, uh, I was on one of those weeks where the pastor's just way behind on everything. And I, I had a ticket for the game. And I woke up and I got ready and everything. And I went into the office for a little bit. And then I was going to go to the game. Game was at like one. I'm sitting in my office looking at my ticket on my phone. And I said, you know what? I'm going to, for the first time in my life, be a responsible grown-up, and I'm not going to go to the game today. I'm going to sit in my office because I know I'll get a little bit more work done. But I'll put the game on. Uh, I took the old, we switched the projector screens at our old church. We had two of them that were matching, and one of them died. And then we had to replace both at the same time. So I took the other one that still worked, and it was like half the size of this screen, and I put it on the wall in my office, and I mounted the projector from the ceiling. So I put the game on my big giant wall of a TV that I had in my office. And I'm just sitting there working. Third inning comes along, and I go, huh, boy, that Tim Lincecum sure has not given up a hit yet. I've always wanted to go to no-hitter. It's only the third inning. So I keep watching, and I'm working. The fourth inning comes around. The fifth inning comes around. Then I start debating myself. All right, if I get down there, I can get down there in like 10, 15 minutes. I'll miss one more inning. Should I go? He's really doing this thing. Now, by the time I get down there, he'll have given up a hit, and then I'll have wasted like an hour getting down there, running into the stadium, seeing he's given up a hit, and going, ah, okay, I'll go back to the office. And so I talked myself out of going, and then I sat in my office beating myself up while I watched Tim Lincecum pitch a no-hitter. One of the only ones that happened in that long stretch of Giants baseball. And I've been thinking about it literally ever since. It's hard to go to Giants games now. I get so sad. It's hard to work on sermons. I get so sad because I remember the time I missed out. I had an opportunity in front of me and I did the, the right thing, but it was actually the wrong thing, you know? You know, it's another one of those where somebody missed out like big time. That's just I missed something I kind of want to see for my, you know, I've wanted to see my whole life. Uh, did you know Sean Connery? turned down 15% of the Lord of the Rings sales to play Gandalf because he read the script and he didn't understand it. Did you Have you ever heard that story? 
And he basically quit acting after that. If you're like, why have I only seen Sean Connery in one or two movies since Lord of the Rings came out? That's why. He, he felt so bad. I, don't, I didn't do any of the math or actually look any of this up because I don't really care for this illustration. But Lord of the Rings, those brought in like, what, a billion dollars a piece or something? I mean, if you do the math on 15% of a couple of billion dollars, I'm assuming, this guy left hundreds of millions of dollars on the table. And in the interview, you could just see him. I remember him talking about it once, just devastated. Like, oh, I can't believe I had this opportunity and I, I missed out. Today, what we're reading is even more important than no hitters and being in excellent movies, by the way, the, from the greatest books of all time. Um, Peter and John are going to have an opportunity. And unlike me and unlike Sean Connery, they're going to capitalize on this opportunity. Um, they, they don't miss out. Now, um, we've all had these gospel opportunities in our lives where we thought, I have a chance to share the gospel. I have a chance to do something good for somebody. And we completely chickened out and didn't do it at all. And then we felt like garbage. That's the situation Peter and John are in, except unlike us, they actually, they, they take chance. They take a chance and they do the right thing. And we're going to read this sermon that Peter's about to preach. Um, and what I want to do today is I want to read this and I want, then I want to jump it to our time. Why did they succeed and we always fail? That's kind of the question I want to ask, right? When we have these gospel opportunities. So let me, um, for those of you who haven't been with us for the last, I don't know, handful of weeks we've been doing Acts, um, let me give you the, the outline of what we've been reading. So in chapter two, we read about this miraculous event called Pentecost, where uh, the, the Holy Spirit fell on these 120 disciples and the, the tongues of fire and they're speaking in tongues. And this crowd gathers and Peter preaches this amazing sermon from the book of Joel and a little bit from Psalms all through most of chapter two. And at the end of it, thousands of people come to faith, and the church grows. And it says also that their reputation among the people grew. So the people who weren't believers yet, they, they knew who these Christians were. They knew who they didn't call them Christians yet, but they knew this, these Jesus followers, and they really liked them. They had a really good reputation. And then a couple of weeks ago, uh, the last sermon we did in Acts um, was... Uh, there, Peter, it just sort of picked up the story. It didn't tell us when, probably within a few months of Pentecost. And Peter and John are walking to the temple in the afternoon. They're going to pray and they see a guy there and he can't walk. And Peter goes over to him and the guy gets real excited because he's begging for money. And he thinks, okay, this guy's going to give me some money. And Peter goes, oh, dude, I, sorry. I don't carry cash, right? It's a Venmo world. And he says, the guy gets all bummed out, but he says, but I got something better for you. Get up in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then I said one of my favorite parts of the whole Bible is that Peter picked the guy up. And the amount of faith it takes to pick up a guy that can't walk and set him on his feet and then let go is pretty great, right? Because if that goes horribly, that goes really horribly, right? And so Peter does. The guy uh, stands up and starts bouncing around. And we talked about the the totality, like like how complete this miracle was like this guy didn't learn how to walk. He didn't, he went straight from never walking a single time in his life to jumping around the temple and leaping and praising God. And then, um, in, uh, um, acts in acts two, what is it? Two forty three, I think it is. It says that the, the disciples, the apostles, they were doing lots of other miracles. And so the question is, why did Luke record that miracle, not one of the other ones? What was the difference between that one and all just the random miracles they were healing people? And I think the answer is because the miracles are not the main point. The miracle led to something even better than the miracle. And that's what we're going to read today. Um, 
this wasn't the best miracle. It wasn't the most amazing. It was what it, what it led into. And what it led into was Peter giving his second sermon in the book of Acts. So this guy was a beggar who sat outside the temple every single day for 40 years. The guy was over 40. We'll find out later on. And every single day, everybody knew this guy. And when he starts bouncing around, everybody goes, wait, that guy can walk now? Like we've known that either this is a miracle or this is the longest con of all time. And they go, probably a miracle. So this crowd starts to gather. And then Peter has this opportunity. And that's what we're going to read about today. So uh, we're in Acts chapter 3. We're going to read 11 through 26 today. Um, while, here's the text, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together uh, to them at the portico called Solomon's. So he clung to Peter and John. He's been jumping around. Have you ever been in a crowd that starts to get a little too rowdy? And you have that moment of panic where it's like, uh-oh, I think that's what happened. That's, there's so many people that ask the question in commentary, why did he cling to Peter and John? Well, I think this crowd was starting to get a little out of control, probably, and wondering what's going on, and this guy's been bouncing around, and he goes, what do I do to be safe? Oh, how about those guys that just healed me after 40 years? I bet they'll be probably okay. I bet they know what to do. And so he runs over to them, and the crowd rushes together because it says they're astounded. They can't believe it, Right. Uh, he's this guy went from sitting on the ground, poor begging, to bouncing around like me and Heaven and Izzy when the Niners score a touchdown. Which you guys, <laughs> like yesterday, we bounced just a few times, just enough, right? Um, anyway, so the, it also says here. I want to point this out. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but they gathered together at a place called Solomon's Portico. Um, this is why our church is named the Porch. Uh, this shows up a few different times in the book of Acts, but this was a long shaded area under a bunch of columns in the court of the Gentiles. So literally anybody in the world could come hang out in this court. And it's where the early church met and they did their first church services. And so in our translation here, it's called Solomon's Portico. In other translations, they call it Solomon's Porch. Um, I just named our church The Porch. And the other reason is that's the reason I tell church people. The reason we tell not church people is because Oh, we just like to hang out with our friends and neighbors, and that happens on the porch, even though we don't have porches in San Francisco, you know. So anyway, this is why we're called the porch, is because of texts like this. There's like, I forget, there's two or three of them, I think. All right, let's keep going. Verse 12, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. So just like at Pentecost, it's the same pattern. There's an unusual event, there's a miracle, uh, and it creates a chance to share the gospel. So in Pentecost, it was the spirit falling, the people speaking in languages that they didn't know. And then that leads to Peter's sermon. Here, it's the same pattern, but instead of speaking in tongues, it's a healing. Peter's chance to um, uh, speak, and he gives this sermon. And so that's the pattern that we're going to talk about at the end. I want you to get this, that kingdom life in different ways will create opportunities to share faith. And we're going to talk about what are our kingdom opportunities and that sort of stuff as we go along. All right, he says um, in the rest of verse, what is this, 12? Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? So the very first thing Peter does to open up his sermon is deflect praise away from himself. We all know what it's like when somebody takes credit for your work. You ever had that happen at a job or something where you did something real cool? And then, like, for instance, earlier, I took credit for ordering the donuts. I didn't even order the donuts. Melissa ordered the donuts, if we're being real. You know, um, we know what that, yeah, 
we know what that feels like when you're really proud of something that you've done and then somebody else claims credit for it. It's kind of infuriating, isn't it? That's probably how God feels if some if Peter were to get up and be like, yeah, I healed this dude. I'm great. I'm Peter. I'm really good at healing folks. That's not what Peter does because he knows he didn't order the donuts, right? He knows he's not the guy. He didn't do anything. And so the very first thing he gets up and he says is, I didn't even, I didn't even do this. Um, remember, we talked about this when we read the miracle, but I want to say this again. The apostles are very aware of where their power comes from. When Jesus healed people, he just said, get up and walk. When the apostles heal people, they have to say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. It's a very different thing. Jesus claimed that power in himself. The apostles never do that. They never say, in the name of Peter of Capernaum or wherever he was from, uh, get, is that where he's from? Anyway, get up and walk. You know, He says, no, it's always, about, it's always about Jesus. And so the first thing he says is, it's not even us. And then verse 13, the God of Abraham, this is the second thing he says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. So remember, this is a Jewish story at the very beginning of the book of Acts. The Gentiles are not a part of this yet. Peter's Jewish. All of the apostles are Jewish. Everybody that got saved at Pentecost is Jewish. All the people going into the temple pretty much were either Jews or God-fearers. And these are devout religious people. And so Peter, he's not going to stand up and say, Jesus did this. That's not what he does. He says, at first, let me tell you, let me connect Jesus to the God that you worship. Right? Let's, let's build uh, these bridges. Let's find this common ground. And the common ground is our covenant God that we all share, is what Peter says. And so now he's going to tell a story about this God that they already worship. And he gives some background. And in this background, where he's going to connect Jesus to the Old Testament God, he makes some very wild claims. If you're a first century Jewish person, walking into the temple to either pray or to sacrifice or to do whatever you were doing. What? This is what he says. He says, So the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So it says that God glorified Jesus. In Isaiah 52, uh, 13, we're told that the Messiah will be high and lifted up. Um, when that phrase, high and lifted up, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, uh, it's called the Septuagint. We talked about that in the Bible study class. Um, those guys used the same word in the Greek in translating that Isaiah passage as Peter uses here for glorified. It's, it's that he will be lifted up by God. The same idea shows up in another one of Isaiah's servant songs in chapter 49, where God plainly says, uh, you are my servant whom I will glorify talking about the suffering servant. Peter's picking up that language to say, you guys probably know your, your, your scriptures, right? You know the law and the prophets and the historical books. That guy that God promised to glorify, the guy that God promised to lift up and say, everybody look at him, that's the Messiah, that's Jesus. That's what Peter's message is. And then he goes, you remember Jesus, don't you? You remember the whole story? Because you guys were there when Jesus was arrested and the crowd asked for Jesus to be crucified when Pilate was basically ready to let him go. Pilate couldn't have cared less. 
all he wanted to do was avoid a riot. I mean, he was a terrible leader and he made a horrible decision, right? And had blood on his hands as well. But Peter says, you are the ones that made this whole thing happen. And this is, again, this is not anti-Semitic stuff here. This is one Jewish guy talking to another Jewish guy about some other Jewish guys, right? This is a Jew Again, this is a Jewish story. But what he says, he places most of the blame on the crowd. Now, here's the interesting thing, though. We talked about this with the book of Luke. Uh, who was actually in that crowd was probably not all the regular Jewish people that were at um, Palm Sunday. Everybody was had eaten Thanksgiving dinner the night before, and they were sleeping in. This was very early in the morning. This was a crowd of people that the Jewish leaders probably planted on purpose. Um, but so to us, it doesn't make sense for Peter to go, you guys did this. But remember, this is a communal culture. This is not an individualistic culture. He says, look, you, you guys... You as a people, right? This is what you've done. And so nobody in this culture would have been offended by it. But I wasn't even there. I was asleep when that happened, right? And so Peter places the blame and he keeps using the phrase you and the you is plural. It's like, uh, what do they say in the, in the South? Y'all, right? That's you all, right? We don't do that. You're on the West Coast. Um but anyway, it's like a plural you. That's what he does. He says, y'all did this. <laughs> and he's going to keep using that plural you. All right, verse 14. Keep going. But you, again, you all, you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. So the next thing Peter does is he calls Jesus the holy and the righteous one. Now, imagine that you're at a party or something, and uh, you're. let's make up a whole story here. Okay, you're in... Um, uh, one of those countries in uh, Europe. And you're going to, you get invited, somebody you meet invites you to this party, and you go to this fancy hotel, and there's like a lot of people there. And there's somebody there, and you don't really know who she is, but everybody keeps taking pictures with her, and you can get the sense that like this person's important, but you're just a dumb American, and you don't know who anybody is. And then you hear somebody call her your majesty. Automatically, just hearing that phrase, even the dumb American, you know what? She's some kind of royalty. Right? Because of the phrase, your majesty, you don't have to know who she is. You just know now she's royalty. This phrase, the holy and righteous one, is like the religious version of your majesty. It was a term that was only ever used for God as a title for God. This is not something you would have said about some dude. He's the holy and the righteous one. And anybody that knew the Old Testament scriptures would have picked up on this immediately. Right? And so what Peter says is that God showed up in the person of Jesus. Jesus is God. And when he showed up, you denied that he was God. And you said, I'd rather have a murderer. That's the story of Barabbas, where the crowd picked the one guy instead of, instead of Jesus. You picked the guy who takes life instead of the guy who is the source of all life. You killed the author of life. There's this, Peter does this very intentional contrast here. And when he says the author of life, the word author is a good translation, but it also is kind of a broader, it means like the source of life. Um, there's not really an English word that's like one-to-one -one with this Greek word, um, but in the way that like an author is the source of a story, right? The story comes from the author. It's the same idea. Life itself comes from the person of Jesus. He's making some very wild claims about who Jesus is to a bunch of people who would have thought claiming that a human being was divine was absolutely blasphemous, right? They wouldn't do it with Caesar. They wouldn't do it with anybody else. And they sure probably wouldn't do it with Jesus unless Jesus could prove that he actually was. And how did that happen? In the story, God raised him from the dead. This is an outlandish claim. You see, the Pharisees 
were the one, the biggest religious group of the day. And they believed in the resurrection of the dead, that eventually everybody would receive a resurrected body, uh, some to eternal life and some to eternal damnation. But they believed that that would happen at the end of time. The second group was the smaller group, and they were the more powerful group, but they had less people. That was the Sadducees. And they didn't believe in resurrection at all. They believed this life was all that there is. And they were the ones that were actually in charge of the temple, which doesn't even make a lot of sense. Uh, neither of these groups believed that resurrection could happen in the middle of history. So for Peter, again, to stand up and say, Jesus was God, and you guys killed him. But to prove that he was God, and to prove that he was the author of life, death couldn't hold him. And he came bursting out of the grave. And he was resurrected in the middle of history. And then they would have said, yeah, right. I don't think so. How do you know? And then Peter says, to this, we are all we are witnesses. Remember, this is a key theme in the book of Acts, the witness to Jesus' resurrection. The Greek word, again, for witness, when you see that, most of the time the Greek word for witness in the New Testament is the word martyr. And the word martyr just means, it originally just meant like witness, like I saw something and I'm testifying to the thing that I saw. But it came to mean, I'm so sure about this thing that I saw that even if you kill me, I'm not going to deny that I saw it. And that's what Peter's doing. He says, look, we are martyrs. We are witnesses of this. And so notice what's happening, though. We're most of the way through this sermon here. And what has Peter not done? He hasn't even talked about the miracle yet. Don't you hate when politicians do that? I watched an interview the other day with Gavin Newsom, and the guy asked him a question. And then Gavin Newsom answered a different question. And you can tell the interviewer was like, okay, great, but like, can you answer my question? And Newsom, what he was doing was he was avoiding the question he didn't want to answer. Politicians are really good at that. Um, and Newsom did a really good job. He kind of like started to answer the question and then he like juked. He was like, no, nah, I'm just kidding. I'm going over here. Right. <laughs> and uh, this is not what Peter's doing. Peter's not avoiding the question. What he's doing is he's setting a foundation so that when he answers the question, his answer will make sense. And so uh, he, all he's done so far is talk about who Jesus is. He keeps going here, verse 16. And his name, and, uh, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and you know. They all knew this guy. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So faith in his name. The question here is, whose faith? Whose faith healed the guy? Was it Peter's faith? that healed the guy, or was it the guy's faith? And I think the answer is probably both. Remember, when Peter healed him, he told the guy. There's no doubt Peter had enough faith, right, that he really believed this guy was going to be healed. And we know that because he picked him up and he dropped him on his feet, right? That's, he thought this guy was going to get healed. But did the guy have faith? I think so, and let me tell you how I know. When Peter healed him, he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And you know what the guy didn't do? He didn't go, get off of me. When Peter tried to pick him up, he heard the name Jesus Christ of Nazareth and he went, yep. And he tried to stand up with Peter and he jumped up to his feet. And when he was healed, he starts bouncing around and glorifying God. After Peter just told him Jesus was the one that healed you. He's making that connection, I'm pretty sure. And so what Peter stands up here is he, he stands up in front of the crowd and he says, how is this guy? Well, it's not because I'm great and it's not because he's great. It's because both of us together, we have faith. And that faith in Jesus is what healed him. Uh, all right, let's keep going. Verse 17 now. So Peter, he's told, he's answered the question now. He's laid the foundation. He's answered the question, but he's not done. He could have just stopped right there. 
Now, what do you think of that? Any questions? Right? That's what Peter could have done. No, he goes further because he's using this as an opportunity to talk about something more important than just healing this guy. So he says, and now brothers. So remember, these are all devout Jewish folks. And what Peter is saying is just because we're followers of Jesus doesn't mean we're breaking with you. We love you guys. We want you to believe the same thing that we do. And so he says this, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers. They didn't know. When the, Peter says it right here, they didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know that he was the Messiah when they called for him to be executed, when they called for him to be crucified. They didn't know. They had no idea. They didn't know what they were doing. Right? Jesus even says that from the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they, they don't know what they're doing. But that doesn't make them any less guilty. That's not what Peter was not saying. You didn't know what you're doing. It's fine. You killed God, but whatever. It was it, accidents happen. You know, that's not what he was saying. Ignorance is no excuse for breaking the law. They didn't know it, but they still killed the Messiah. And so, but here's the thing. When the New Testament talks about the death of Jesus, it never talks about it as if it was an accident. I said this when we did the book of Luke. It's not like Jesus tripped and fell and landed on the cross. That was the point. It was, the, it was his plan all along. And that's what verse 18 says. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So Peter connects the death of Jesus to the Old Testament. He says this was all over the Old Testament. These pictures that were pointing to the death of Jesus. We had the sacrifices. We had Passover, suffering servant songs in Isaiah, where it specifically says things like, he will be crushed for our iniquities, right? This, it, this was the plan all along. And Peter does it here. We'll see Paul do this a bunch as well. His pattern is going to be later in the book of Acts. He's going to go into a synagogue. He's going to connect to Jesus and the Old Testament. And then he's going to say, this guy's your Messiah, and it was God's plan all along. And there, he, Paul's going to do the same thing that Peter does here in verse 19. He calls for action. He gives the Billy Graham, uh, you know, let's walk down the aisles. Repent, therefore, and turn back. I say this every time we talk about repenting. You guys should be so sick of me saying this now. Every time I write this, I'm like, I already said that 100,000 times. What's repenting? It's turning around. How do we know it's turning around? Peter says it in this verse. This is where we get it from, <laughs> right? Repent and turn back, turn around. It's just turning from sin to Jesus. That's repentance. It's a very simple idea. But if you think about it, this is a very harsh thing to say to these people. Remember, these are devout Jewish people who are going to the temple. These are the good guys. These are the guys that think they're righteous. And he goes up to them and he says, everything that you're doing doesn't work anymore. What you're doing is not really enough. You guys, you think you're the good guys, you're actually the baddies, right? You guys remember? Anyway, what's, what's that movie? Are we? Am I the baddies? No, anyway. Um, you guys are the bad guys. You think you're righteous, but you're the ones who killed God himself when he showed up. And so now, what do you need to do? You need to repent. This is like walking into a church and saying, you're all terrible church people that think you're good. This is what Peter does. It's kind of fun. This is what I do every week. You're all terrible <laughs> church people, and you need to repent as well. And he says, if you do, your sins will be blotted out. Now, I have no idea what he means by that. And let me tell you why. Because I read, I read a lot of stuff when I'm prepping these sermons, and half of these guys said one thing, and then half said the complete opposite contradictory thing. Let me tell you what half of them said, what each of them said. There's one group of commentators that said, ink back in the day, had less acid or something in it. And so when you would write on paper, you could kind of wipe it off. That's the first group. And Peter means they would all understood that image. The other group of commentators said, 
uh, ink had like way more acid back in the day and it was impossible to wipe off. And so what Peter was saying was, God will do something impossible for you. I have no idea. I wasn't there and I never used a pen in the first century or whatever. You know, I don't know if they had ballpoint pens, but either way, I think the image is clear. Somewhere, right, your sins have been written down. There's a record. And with so, it, facing the judgment of God, you're going to have to answer for every single one of those sins. But if you repent and you put your faith in Christ, that record gets wiped away, whether it's because of the ink or what, you know, however it works, right? God is going to reformat that hard drive and he's going to click the thing that does like seven passes. You know what I mean? So then even the FBI can't get it when you're done and he's not going to bring it up anymore. Your sins will be blotted out. But salvation goes even further than that. Salvation is not just you avoid the penalty for sin. Salvation is not just fire insurance. There's more to it than that. Verse 20, he says that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, there's some debate here as to what he means by times of refreshing and what that means exactly. I don't think, um, I don't think he's talking about the future because one group of people says this is talking about restoration of the end times, because he talks about that again in a second. I think what he's talking about is, I agree with the group of guys who go, um, this is a, a sense of peace in your life. It's like you, you, you feel almost clean, you know, when you've been camping and you go home and you take a real shower and you're just like, ah, life is good and I have running water, right? It's like that for your soul, but you have a sense of peace in this life um, and then he keeps going. He talks more. He says, and um, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So again, this is why I think the other one's talking about what happens now, because then he talks about the restoration of all things at the end. This is the end of the gospel story. So you have salvation now where you are saved and you avoid the penalty from sin, you have the sense of God's presence, and you have a hope as you look forward to an eternity when Jesus will return and he will put the world back together. And until then, he's hanging out in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father. But I promise you, he's coming back. And when he does, all the brokenness that you see around you and all the sickness, like this guy here who can't walk and all these people with leprosy and all this other stuff and, you know, um, vertigo and you know all this you know <laughs> and uh stomach sickness and cancer and all this stuff that we hate and people not getting along and bears eating you in the woods i assume that's the thing i'm the most afraid of in the world by the way uh, all of these scary terrible things that are evidence that the world is broken are going to be put back together right and we're going to live at one with god with each other with the environment around us and the world that we've been created to be a part of and this was god's plan all along he says this was um, uh, what the prophets were talking about um, the whole time. Now, let's keep going here. Verse 22. And, and then he connects this to the prophets a little. We're not going to spend a ton of time on this part. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So the first thing he says the next thing he says, Peter, he's connecting this to the Old Testament, and he goes to the greatest figure in the Old Testament in the eyes of Jewish folks was Moses. He was even greater than Abraham, greater than Elijah, greater than all these guys. He was like the pinnacle of Jewish leadership was Moses. And what did Moses tell you guys? That one day somebody better than me is going to come along, and you should probably listen to him when he does. And Peter stands up and says, that guy that Moses was waiting for, that was 
the Messiah. That was Jesus. And then he keeps going. But it's not just Moses. Verse 24, all, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him and also proclaimed these days. So um, uh, he starts with Samuel, who was the last of the judges and the first of the great prophets. But he says all of them, Isaiah, Ezekiel. We talked about how much Messiah stuff was in the book of Ezekiel when we read that. All of these guys um, talked about who Jesus was and that he was coming. Now, do you remember when we read the first sermon? At the end of the first sermon that Peter gives, Luke goes, I mean, and then he said like a bunch of other stuff, but I'm not writing it all down. And what we can tell from that is that all of these sermons that we read in Acts, like if I just read this sermon, I bet it would take less than two minutes. And as you know, there's no such thing as a two-minute sermon, <laughs> right? These are summaries of sermons. I'm guessing that this is one of the places that Luke is summarizing. I bet that Peter broke out, who's got a Torah scroll? You know what I mean? Like, pass it on down. Let's read some Torah passages. And they start reading. He starts explaining uh, more. And he gets, okay, who's got the book of Samuel? Let's read some of this stuff about Samuel. He's getting into this stuff. And then at the end, verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring, all of the families on the earth will be blessed. So he, he then he ties it to Moses, Samuel, the other prophets. Then he jumps all the way back to the beginning. And he says, because of Jesus now, the promise to Abraham is being fulfilled because of Christ, because of Jesus Christ. The thing where Abraham said everybody in the, the world is going to be blessed by the people of Israel happened because Jesus was born Jewish. And as a people... You've sent Jesus into the world. And then verse 26, the close, this is the last verse we're going to read. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So he, he says, look, you guys are lucky because Jesus has come. He is the Messiah. And because you're Jewish and you're hanging out at the temple today, he's such a, um, a good like TV salesman. You get first dibs, right? You know, those guys, I was watching something. It was like a, one of those, I love infomercials. And one of the saddest things about streaming is I don't get to watch them all night like I used to, you know? Uh, but I don't remember. I was watching one recently while I was flipping through on Hulu. They had one on. And the guy was like, better hurry up. There's limited quantities. And I was like, yeah, there's no way this guy doesn't have a warehouse. He's trying to get rid of this stuff. Nobody's buying whatever this thing is. Peter's kind of got that same urgency, except what he's selling actually makes sense, right? He's saying, look, you're lucky. You're the first ones. You get first dibs on this offer. You get to be the first Kickstarter guys who get the early bird special on this salvation through Jesus. And then that's the end of the sermon. Now, here's the problem with that being the end of the sermon. Uh, that's not a very good end to a sermon. I, Peter doesn't finish his sermon. He's like right in the middle of a thought. And you guys can turn from your wickedness. The next thing that should happen is he should go, so who wants to come on down, right? The water is fresh, you know, or something like that. Um, and there should be this big conversion experience. But that doesn't happen because if you have a Bible and you look one or two verses forward, uh, all the guards show up and they arrest Peter in the middle of his sermon and they cut him off and he doesn't get to finish the sermon. Um, and so... But what we will see next time that I'm here, I'm not here next week. Um, Drew's going to come preach for us next week. Uh, I'm going to be doing uh, Stephen's wedding in Phoenix. Um, so Chris will teach next week, and then, I'm sorry, Drew will teach next week, and then I'll be back the week after. And when we do that sermon in two weeks, what we'll see is the sermon was a success because the people praise God, and they're so excited about God because of this that the Sanhedrin, who want to punish Peter 
and John don't even get to because they go, look how great the people, like, look how excited the people are about all of this stuff. And we'll see the church will grow even larger. Peter healed this guy, right? And it created this opportunity to share. And he took that opportunity and it ended up being a huge success. And so that's how I want to end today by um, talking about these kind of opportunities in our own context. So here's the first thing. I want us to think about, we've all had that moment where we were talking to somebody and we knew that person is actually going to listen to what I say. You guys know what I'm talking about? Now, there, there's conversations where you go like this. Uh, let me give you some advice. And you know this person's not going to take any of this advice at all and they don't care. You know the kind of conversation I'm having when somebody genuinely is interested in what you think and what you have to say and wants to know, wants advice from you. We want to, I want to start by asking, how do we create those opportunities? How does that happen? How do we get from a place where nobody cares what we think at all to a place where they care deeply what we think? And there's a lot of bad ways to do this. That's how I want to start, is with the bad ways. What are the wrong ways that we get people to listen to what we have to say? And you know what's the worst one? I have a whole list here, but let's start with the, the, the almost the devil. Instagram influencers, you guys. Just kidding. Uh, but you've got your online guys who, look how great I am. You should be like me. And you should drink this disgusting green smoothie thing. You guys know that stuff? Um, yeah. Oh, come on. No. Mm -mm. Okay, so that's one way. Influencers. The next way is just what we all try to be influencers, except we have no followers, where we're just like, I'm going to be cool, and then people will want to listen to me. You should probably listen to me because I'm great. There's such pride in that, isn't there? Look at me. I know everything. I'm so great. You should be more, you should be more like me, right? And so we use our coolness to influence people. Um, another way is by using power, right? You should listen to me because if you don't, you're fired. That's a coercive way to get people to listen to you. The other way, another way is manipulation, right? We gaslight people and manipulate feelings and we get people to listen to us because they feel bad for us or whatever. Another way is spiritual abuse. You should listen to me about my, suge my subjective idea because God told you to. Because I'm the pastor, because I'm an elder, and you should not take that job. Because if you do, it's bad for me, is the real reason. Or, you know, I'm your brother and sister in Christ, and God said that you should give me some money. Right? There, there's spiritual abuse. There's lots of other ways, you know, we could probably make a longer list than this. But there are ways that are basically self-centered ways that we try to get people to listen to us and be influenced by us. In our text, how did Peter and John create the opportunity? They had a miracle, and that miracle points to eternity. It gives people the glimpse of the kingdom of God the way that it's supposed to be. And that glimpse of the kingdom of God, the way the world is supposed to be, created a sense of curiosity within people. And those people showed up to Peter and John and they said, what's going on here? And then Peter got up and he gave this wonderful sermon. Now, miracles. So is the answer to this, then we should be out there with the healing ministry, right? Knocking people over with our jackets and selling oil online for $29.95, five payments of $29.95. Um, did I ever tell you that, that my old pastor, <laughs> I don't know if this is good or bad, but it's funny. I, I wouldn't do this, but I still thought it was funny. He would buy all that stuff 
as like tchotchkes for his office, you know? He had a whole shelf of healing cloths and feathers and oil, little oil things. And <laughs> we all thought it, we would make fun of these guys. But I mean, still, you're giving them twenty nine ninety five, guy. You're kind of feeding the purpose. But should we do that? Should we sell that stuff online? No. Um, I think I've talked about this the last couple of weeks, so I'm not going to beat this to death. Miracles do still happen, right? Like the guy that I did the funeral for last week, um, in the 90s, he was healed from cancer, and his miraculous healing is part of my story of how I came to faith. I don't know if I would have come to faith. I mean, I you know, probably would have. I don't know. But without that, but that was the means that God used to bring me to faith, was seeing somebody that was supposed to die and hearing all the doctors go, we don't know how this guy's alive. This is not possible. After a prayer meeting where some guys at church prayed for him. So that stuff does happen. But I also don't think there's anything in the New Testament that says you need to build your whole ministry around this that miracles are going to be the regular way that we create glimpses of the kingdom of God. I think what we do is just sort of more regular stuff. We pray, and when miracles happen, that's great. But let's talk about the regular ways that this happens. Now, here at the porch, we have our outreach pathway. We call it the Pabst Blue Ribbon Pathway. And let me tell you what this is. It's pray for people. I should have put this on a slide, but I didn't. Uh, pray for people. Ask them about your life. Ask them about their life. Bless them in ways nobody else would. Share your own personal story of faith with them, and then talk to them about gospel truth, right? P-A-B-S-T. And every one of those first one, two, three, four will lead to five. So when you pray for somebody, ask them about their lives, bless them in ways nobody would, and share your story, all four of those in different ways will lead for opportunities for T, for talking about the gospel. And I want to show you how. Um, prayer. So when you say to somebody, can I pray for you? Um, it's a very, it's a very disarming thing most of the time. Um, or maybe not, can I pray for you right now and be weird in the middle of our office place? But if you say to somebody, hey, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. You know, I'm a religious person, however you want to say it. You know, I'm a Christian. Um, would it be okay if when I'm praying, if I prayed for this problem that you're having? And just asking people for permission to do that is great. Most of the time, people will just say, think, I think you're crazy. But yeah, it's not going to hurt, right? Sure. Go pray for me. See what happens, right? But every time it happens, I think they'll at least be, okay, that person cares enough about me to ask if they can pray for me. The second thing prayer does is it makes you want to follow up in a way that you wouldn't. Now, you have to actually pray for somebody for the follow-up part to work. If you just ask somebody, can I pray for you? And then forget all about it and never think about it again, you're never going to follow up with them. But if you go home and write it on your Bible or, you know, in your prayer journals, your Pabst Blue Ribbon journals that we have, if you write it in that, you look at it every day and you're praying for it, you're going to wonder what happened, what happened with your son. What happened with whatever situation you're in? How are you feeling today? I know you've been sick. I've been praying for you, you know? And then again, that breaks down barriers and it lets people know that you really care. And all of those things are glimpses of the way the kingdom is supposed to be, the way the world is supposed to be. We're supposed to actually care about each other. And when you pray for people in that way, it shows them that you care about them. And eventually it leads to opportunities where they go, this is a good person. And that can eventually lead to the T where we're talking about gospel truth. Okay, what about the A? Asking is basically everything I just said about prayer applies to how we ask people too. Again, we live in a society where nobody... Uh, actually listens to each other. We just wait for each other to stop talking so that we can get our two cents in. But what if you were actually a good listener? Again, 
it would show people that you care about them and it would break down it would break down barriers it would break down walls and it would give people glimpses of the kingdom blessing basically works the same way too it's very rare for people in our culture to do something nice for somebody with expecting nothing in return ever why are you doing this just because because i love you you're my you know i mean maybe not love you don't have to be like hey hey guy that works for me put your hand on the shoulder all super awkward i love you man all right dude where's hr you know um but just showing people blessing them that's why we always say bless them in ways nobody else would we go above and beyond um one example of this is at my old church we were right there in the middle of the castro and uh every year um was pride parade and we would and our church had a very strong uh biblical foundation and biblical sexual ethic but every year we would stand out there and we would hand out water and we would talk to people and we'd have great conversations and we would get to know our neighbors as they were marching in the pride parade and we would get some people that would get real mad at us but that was pretty rare and we would get people that would come in trans folks which bathroom do i use we would go i don't know man what it's like yeah go ahead just you know i don't know here's some water right and just that sort of disarming that's not what they were expecting from church would lead to a lot of questions like why are you guys giving us water i remember one year it was like real hot it was like the week where it gets hot in san francisco and we were all out there roasting to death and it was a real good it was great because we just got to say um because it's hot outside yeah but why are you giving us water well aren't you hot like you're people it's hot out here man <laughs> like we don't want everybody overheating and you know it was just bless them in ways that they weren't expecting led to a lot of really good conversations that's what we want to do now sharing when when you share your story in a way that's vulnerable in a way that you don't look that good it breaks down walls when you share your story and you're like let me tell you 15 this is why i hate autobiographies let me tell you about why i was the greatest president <laughs> or whatever right now everybody hates you dude like but when you tell your story in a way where jesus is the hero and you're not it's very disarming because everybody thinks church people think we're the best and the truth is we know we're the worst and we need salvation Right? And that's why we're here. It's not because we're the best. It's because we know we're not the best. We know we're terrible. And when you share your story in that way, I think it really, people aren't expecting that. And it breaks down walls. And all of those things will lead to the T, right? The talking about gospel truth. But here, here's a problem. All of this is great. And hopefully, if you're honest, while I've been sharing all of this, something is bugging you. As I list these ways to share the faith and these ways to create opportunities to share your faith, I bet that a little part of you went, boy, that sounds like a lot. What John is describing does not sound like me. And my answer to that is, of course it doesn't, <laughs> right? Because like I said earlier, the main part of my job is to get up here every week and go, you guys stink, right? You're terrible. You're horrible sinners in need of grace. And this is probably more like you. Most of your relationships you want to be the kind of guy that God tells you to be, but most of the time, your relationships are more about you than the other person. And more often than not, your mind drifts to, what can I get out of this relationship? Am I getting what I need? Right? How can I influence this person to get my promotion at work? How can I influence this person to get some sort of validation that I need? How can they get them to stroke my ego or... Uh, 
you know, whatever. Our sin nature always says, get into these situations, but not so you can point people to Jesus, so that you can point people to yourself, because you're great and you're the center of the world. That's what our sin nature says. And so, Josue and I always do when we get together, we do, uh, like, we'll do a passage and then we do, what's the bad sermon? How do you preach this terribly? And the bad sermon for this is me standing up here and go, Peter and John were really good at grabbing these opportunities and you should be really good at it too. Amen. Let's pray. You should do better. You should get out there and you should do a better job. But a good sermon, I think, hopefully a good sermon, uh, we'll see the Yelp reviews afterwards. Uh, but Peter, let's look at what Peter did. How did Peter do it? He had an opportunity before this to talk about Jesus at the trial when Jesus was being arrested, and not in front of a big crowd of people, in front of one little girl who had no power. And what did he do? He totally chickened out. And he denied that he even knew Jesus. And I read that and I go, hmm, that sounds more like me, right? I'm more early Peter than later Peter. So fast forward just a few months, and here he is standing in the temple preaching this sermon. Next week, he's gonna yell at the guys who killed Jesus. He's gonna be like, you killed Jesus, you stupid idiots. Like, what do you, you know, he's this bold, completely different person. And what happened? Holy Week. He saw Jesus die and then rise from the dead. He sat and he ate fish with a guy he saw get crucified. Or heard, I don't think he was there, but you know what I mean. And then Jesus blasted off into heaven and he watched him be taken into the clouds into the glory of God. And then the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost. And Peter was completely transformed and filled with the Spirit. And next week, it's even going to specifically say, and Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, Peter doesn't have the boldness to grab these gospel opportunities because he was so great. He did because he understood the gospel in a deeper way than we do, because he was filled with the Spirit. And so I could stand up here and guilt you. You need to be better and take better advantage of these Pabst Blue Ribbon opportunities. But then what will happen is this. You will miss an opportunity, and then you will feel like garbage. And you'll just beat yourself up and you'll be filled with shame. And then an opportunity will pop up. And um, the next time you'll use that opportunity to just make yourself feel better. Or you'll use it to make money or to get a job or to do whatever. And so what we need is not more grit, right? We need more Holy Spirit. We need to understand the gospel the way that Peter did in a way that maybe we don't. And so how do we do that though? How do we be filled with the Spirit the way Peter does? How do we understand the gospel in a way that's so deep that we don't miss these gospel opportunities? And it's the same answer I always give that everybody hates. There's no magic formula. We do the regular stuff. We call them the means of grace. And so we read our Bibles, right? This is my Wednesday pitch. Show up Wednesday nights. If you guys don't know about Wednesday nights, let me know after. I'll give you all the details. We just hang out. We're doing a, a class called How to Study the Good Book. So we just read our Bibles. We pray. This is my pitch for January 31st. You know what we're going to do Wednesday night, January 31st? We're just going to pray. It's not real complicated. I'm going to bring a guitar and a box of songs, you know, and uh, we're going to sit there and worship and pray. And we worship and we fellowship and we just fill our lives with the things of God. And then we go out into the world and say, Lord, fill me with your spirit and let's see what happens. That's the pattern. So don't go try harder to be a better missional living kind of person. That's not what I want you to do. I want you to try harder to be more of a gospel person. Be filled with the Spirit. Have a, let the Lord give you this new heart, a new understanding of the gospel, a new love for the lost. 
and then go out there and give advice and see what happens. Love people, pray for them, ask them about their lives, bless them, share your story, talk about the gospel. Let it flow out of you naturally the way it did with Peter here.